0: You're listening to a sermon from Leewood Baptist Church. For more information about us, visit our website at leewoodbaptist.com. If you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 12. We continue on into our, our study of Genesis together. Over the last few weeks, we've seen established that God is the creator, that God is holy, that we are sinful. And so God put a redemptive plan to save us. We've seen how God pours out his wrath upon sin. We saw that God cannot tolerate sin. We saw that in the, the account of Noah and the flood, that God poured out his wrath upon humanity of, uh, on sin, but that God sent a rescuer the ark to rescue Noah and his family. Though they, did, they deserve to be destroyed, God spared them. And we've seen all throughout that God has been promising, though He is holy, we are sinful as human beings. God has promised a rescuer to come to save us. This morning, we're going to see again God beginning to put a little bit more detail together in this redemptive plan. And God begins putting this redemptive plan. He starts piecing it together. He starts holding his redemptive plan together. That God had promised Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 that there was one that was going to come and crush the head of Satan that through their offspring, that that's who would come. And so we're going to see God begin putting those pieces together, the glue that holds it together. Now, I want to talk about this glue for just a moment in God's redemptive plan. If you're gluing something together, maybe it's a glue stick, hot glue stick, whatever, its, its purpose is to hold it together. Well, God has this redemptive plan that spans out over thousands of years, many, many centuries. But what holds that plan together, whether it's in regards to time or people, the glue that holds God's redemptive plan together is covenants. Covenants are the backbone to the Bible. You've heard me say that a couple of times throughout our Genesis series. Covenants are the backbone of the Bible. Now let's talk about what a covenant is. What is a covenant? Someone just spit out an answer, okay? What is a covenant? A promise, okay? It's a promise. Absolutely, it's a promise. But you and I can make promises together, right? Like, I may promise to give you a Ferrari. Now, I would love to make that promise. I would love to be like Oprah and say, look under your your seat right now, and I promise to give you a car. I cannot come through on that promise, all right? But we make promises as human beings all the time. But what do we do? We break them. We break promises all the time. So, a covenant is yes, a promise, but it goes a step further. There's also a conch almost like a contract involved. So, if you are buying a house, when you buy a house, you sit down and at the end of the day there is a contract presented and you sign that. It is a promise saying that I'm going to buy this house, but it's also a legal document that says you own this house. So, a covenant The word covenant is a bit bit of a a hybrid of a word, of a promise and a contract together. It's binding. It cannot be broken. All right, we have some covenants today. What is the most often covenant that comes to mind? Marriage. Marriage is a covenant made between a man and a woman. It's a binding covenant. Uh, of together a promise together that at the end of the day a man says I do I will take you in sickness and health I will love you forever forsaking all others that's a covenant and the woman says I do I promise to stay with you for in sickness and in health through better for worse or however the 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 wording may go and they make a covenant together it's a covenant Well, God, throughout His redemptive plan, we see in Scripture, God makes covenants along the way. Those are the glue that hold His redemptive plan together, and covenants are the backbone of the Bible. We've already seen two covenants in Genesis. We saw in Genesis 3, God told Eve, your offspring will crush the head of the serpent, the evil one. He will strike his heel, he will crush his head. That was a covenant made in Genesis chapter 3. We saw God make a covenant with Noah. God made a covenant with Noah. What was the the covenant that God made with Noah? He made a covenant with him and he said, I will not destroy the earth again by a flood. I will not do it. And God gave a sign of his covenant by a rainbow. We have a sign of covenants made, a wedding ring. This is a sign of the covenant I made with Mary Lane. God gave a sign to Noah of a covenant. So God makes these covenants. So today, we're going to see one of the most prominent covenants made in all of Scripture. And as we understand this covenant, we see the significance of this. And as this covenant is made... That it holds together the entire redemptive plan. And through this covenant, we begin to see the beauty of God's redemptive plan unfold. Though it takes time, though it will be a long time till the rescuer will come, we will see this covenant unfold by this promise made. So if you have your Bible, and then I hope you do, turn to Genesis chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the pew in front of you that is our church's gift to you. That that Bible is meant to be given away and taken with you. So you can turn to Genesis chapter 12 and look at verse 1. It says here, The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Morah at the time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed by stages to, to the Negev. So now we are introduced to one of the prominent characters in all of the Bible. Now, let's talk about these characters of the Bible, because we're going to begin hitting over the next eight to ten weeks a lot of characters of the Bible. Here's the beauty of these characters. They're gigantic mess-ups. These guys mess up. They will mess up a lot. Abraham has a tendency to lie. We'll see that. So a lot of times when we view these characters, we view these guys, these people, we view these people as like they had some kind of extra amount of spirituality than we, than we do. But they don't. They are a huge mess. Abraham, one of the pro- most prominent figures in the Bible, he has a, he's a habitual liar. Moses has anger issues. David A man after God's own heart, we talked a little bit about this last week, a man after God's own heart was an adulterer and a murderer. So we see consistently that these heroes of the faith really aren't heroes. And here's what we need to understand about these people as we continue on in this series for the next eight to ten weeks. That God, I want us to, to to view this this way, I want us to view it as a play, and on the play you have characters on the stage. The characters on the stage they are important, but the person that's really important is the is the playwright. Is the director. So in this redemptive story of God saving mankind, God is the playwright. He is the director. He is the one behind the scenes making things happen, put, happening, putting people in the place where He wants them to put. God is at work consistently. These people are just players in the play. So we need to understand that. So these people here are Yes, people that followed after God, but they sinned just like you and I did. They were made out of the same flesh and bones that you and I were. And so we see that even in, in the life of Abram. Abram is mentioned here. His name's Abram. His name gets changed to Abraham. So we're just going to talk, call him Abraham from here on out. So here's what happens. God tells Abraham to go out from his land and his relatives from his father's house to a land that God would show him. Now here's something about human nature. We talked about this a little bit last week with the Tower of Babel. What is the one thing we all have in common in our human nature? We don't like change. We don't like change. We don't like how many of you have ever moved before What All of us have, and I see everyone scowling, like no one likes to move. If you like to move, you need to go get some help, okay? Like there's something wrong there. No one likes to move. Loading up a U-Haul truck and going to the process of it, it's a pain. What's even harder is to move out of state, I mean, it's, it's difficult enough to move from one neighborhood to another neighborhood, but imagine many of us have moved from state to state, and that is a long journey. It's very, very difficult. It's hard. Here God tells Abraham, for 75 years, he has lived in the same land with his relatives in his father's house, and God tells this 75-year-old man to leave his father's house, his relatives, and to move. But here's what's interesting. God doesn't tell Abraham where he's taking him. God says, Abraham, I want you to move. I want you to leave your family, your relatives, the country you've known your whole life, and move. And if I'm Abraham, I'm sitting there saying, okay, God, I might be able to do that. Where to? God says, I will show you. So God calls Abraham to make, to move to a place he doesn't know. Abraham's 75 years old. He probably doesn't want to move if he's 75. So God tells him to move, and he follows and he obeys God, and he tells him, I will move. Now, here's something that we need to understand how God, what God does, and we have a lot of biblical proof of this. Whenever God is about to do a great work, whenever God is about to do something amazing, he calls his people to take a step of faith. Every time. Whenever God is about to do something big, and God is about to do something big here in Genesis 12. Whenever God is about to do something big, whenever God is about to to amaze his people, He makes them do something uncomfortable to take a step of faith. We see that consistently through Scripture. We see this in Exodus. God calls Moses to take a step of faith at the burning bush. And Moses argued with God. Moses said, I can't speak. I don't want to do this. And God calls Moses at the burning bush to go and lead his people Israel out of slavery to a, to, the, to a promised land. Moses leads his people out of leads God's people out of Egypt. They come to the Red Sea. They backed up. They're backed up to the Red Sea. And what did God's people want to do? They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to slavery. We see them do this all the time. And God does something amazing, and He parts the Red Sea. Whenever God is about to do a great work among His people, He calls His people to trust Him, to believe Him. Even if it takes, even if it's uncomfortable, even if they may not like it, maybe they may not even prefer it, but God calls His people to step out in faith. And to do something uncomfortable, out of their comfort zone, to do something to trust Him before God does something great. So here's my question to all of us. First of all, individually, what is God calling you to do that may make you feel uncomfortable? What is God calling you to do to maybe make himself famous in your life? It may be simple as going next door to your neighbor and sharing the gospel with them. That's terrifying. It may be going to a relative and sharing the gospel with them. There's no people that are harder to share the gospel with than with family members. What is God calling you to do that maybe is out of your comfort zone, but God wants to do something amazing in your life? God calls His people, His church to take a step of faith that might be uncomfortable, maybe unpleasant, maybe not be something that his people, the church, prefer to step out in faith so God can do something amazing. So I ask us as a faith family, as a church, what is God calling us to do that may feel uncomfortable, that is outside of our comfort zone, so God can display his glory amongst us to the ends of the earth? Whenever God calls his people to do something, he moves them to an uncomfortable place. And this is what God is doing in the life of Abraham, because God is about to do something extraordinary in the life of Abraham. Henry Blackaby, in his book, Experiencing God, many of you may have read it. He says, if you want to experience God at work in your life and see what God is doing and see God display his power, find where God is at work and join him. But here's often what we do. We make big plans and we say, God, now you follow them. And then we make the plans and we include God in them. That's not faith. That's not trust. So, what is God's big plan in the life of Abraham? Why is God moving him out of his comfort and of his country and amongst his family? What is God going to do? Look at verse 2. He says, I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And hell, here's the key phrase here. And all the peoples. Some translations may say nations. And all the peoples, all the nations on earth will be blessed through you. That's a pretty amazing promise. That just from Abraham. And his family, a great nation will come out. And that through that nation, that family of people, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's a pretty amazing covenant, pretty amazing promise. Then we see in Genesis 12, Moses, or Moses, Abraham leaves. He follows where God takes him. God even tells him in verse 7, he said, your offspring I will give this land. God makes this covenant, this promise to Abraham. Then we see in Genesis 13, Abraham and his nephew Lot, they separate. Lot gets into a little bit of trouble. A war breaks out in Genesis 14. Abraham saves him. Then we come to Genesis 15. So turn over there to Genesis 15. God's going to elaborate a little bit more on this promise, this covenant that he's going to make with Abraham. So look at Genesis chapter 15 and look at verse 1. It says this, After these events, these are the events of Lot and and Abraham going and rescuing Lot. It says, After these events... The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your your reward will be very great. But Abraham said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless, childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Abraham continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Here's the problem. There's a major problem in God's plan. Abraham's childless. Abraham and his wife Sarah are not able to have children. And God has promised him, I'm going to make you a great nation through your offspring, all the people of the earth will be blessed. I will give this land to your offspring. And Abraham's sitting there. He's like, okay, God, I believe you. He moves. But in the back of Abraham's mind this whole time, Abraham is saying, there's a big problem. I don't have any kids. I am childless. And it even says here, the heir of his house would be Eleazar of Damascus. Now, we don't know anything about Eleazar, but a poor, apparently, he was a servant. He was a slave of, of Abram, probably was the keeper of Abram's house, kept everything, all his endeavors straight for him. And so he says, "A slave born in my house will be my heir." And so we see God calls Abraham to do something out of the ordinary to move out of his comfort zone and place. And Abraham's got questions. He's got questions. Now, can I just stop here for just a moment? Asking God questions is not wrong. A lot of times we can hear people say, well, you just need to have faith and you need to have trust in God. And yes, that's true. We need to have faith. We need to have faith. We need to trust God. We need to follow God. But we are also human. And we have questions so let me just encourage all of us as a faith family, when we ask questions, that is not a symptom of faithlessness. That's just wanting to know. And so Abraham is just like, okay, God, I trust you. I believe you, but I don't have any kids. So how is my offspring going to inherit this land? How, is my, how am I, my family going to become a great nation? How is this even going to happen? Look at verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to him. Chapter 15, verse 4. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to them, your offspring will be that numerous. So God takes Abraham out there, and he says, look at the stars. Your family will be like the stars of the sky. God even tells Abraham to count them. And God, we even kind of see a little sarcasm here by God. He says, if you're able to. He says, count the stars. Your family will be like that. Your offspring will be that numerous. And then look at verse 6. And this is key. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, there's something we need to really understand and come to terms with, this idea of being credited with righteousness. Once you imagine that you go to the bank, you go to the bank, whatever bank you might go to, and you go to the bank, you need to withdraw some some cash, you go to the bank, and the teller tells you the, the the teller tells you there at that table at the desk and says, "Oh, by the way, your account has been credited with an extra thousand dollars." Okay, I'll take that in a heartbeat, right? I don't think any of us would turn down free money. What happens when your account is credit when your account is credited? You are given something. You are to the good. You are profiting. There is a bonus there. And it says here that Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. What did Abraham believe to be credited with righteousness? Because Abraham is not a righteous guy. As we said, he has a tendency to lie he has a tendency to take things in his own hands, and we're going to see that here soon, where he uh, goes to his wife's uh, maiden and has a child with her because he doesn't trust God fully. But he's credited with righteousness. He, what does he believe? He believes this, verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse, uh, verse 3, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through him. That a Messiah is going to come. A rescuer is going to come and is going to save the people from their sins. Turn over to Romans chapter 4. The Apostle Paul elaborates a little bit more on this belief of Abraham here in Genesis 15. Look at Romans chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul writes, he says, What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now the one who works pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited credited for righteousness. so Abraham believed God that God was going to send a rescuer to save the people from their sin. And now you and I have the benefit and spiritual blessing of hindsight being 2020. We know who that rescuer was going to be It was going to be Jesus Christ who was going to come and save people from their sin. So Abraham believes God and is credited to him as righteousness. And obviously Abraham believed God because he moved his family. He moved out of his his land that he grew up in. But God's going to even elaborate even more on this covenant that he's making with Abraham in a very real way. So let's start reading in verse 7 of chapter 15. He says, He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans. You say, "Where where is Ur? Ur is in modern-day Iraq. I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, laid the pieces opposite of each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them. And will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals." On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, the Kenzites, the Kadamites, the Hethites, Perizzites, Ephraim, Amorites, Canaanites, Gergesites, and Jebusites. See, God even elaborates even more on this covenant he makes with Abraham. He tells Abraham, to go and take a three-year-old cow and kill it, a three-year-old female goat and kill it, a three-year-old ram and kill it, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So Abraham kills these animals, and what he does here is he cuts these. He follows God's instructions. He cuts these animals in half, and he places one half on the animal on one side and the other half of the animal on the other. And then he does the same, and he does the same, and then he puts, keeps the birds together and puts them on opposite ends. Now, why in the world would God ask Abraham to do this? We need to understand a little bit of cultural context in these days of Genesis 15. In those days, contracts were made by the sacrificial cutting of animals, with the split carcasses of the animals lying on the ground. The covenant was made when the parties in the agreement walked through the animal parts together, repeating the terms of the covenant. So, if like I said, we use the example of real estate. If you bought a house and the person you bought the house from, here's what you would do in those days. You would take animals, you would cut them in half, you would put them on opposite sides, almost like making an aisle, walking down this aisle of guts, blood, and gore of these animals, walking together, repeating the terms of the contract. That is how they made the contract. Also, even to a greater degree, at this time, if a king attacked a nation and a country and defeated a country, that king would then bring in the other king that had lost the battle. They would make terms of the surrender. And to mark the terms of the surrender, the winning king would take the losing king's general. He would kill them. He would cut their bodies in half of the, of the generals. Place their bodies, their cut bodies, at uh, uh, opposite ends and make an aisle. The two kings would then walk together in front of their armies, would walk down together and make the terms of the contract, the the terms of surrender through the bodies of the losing generals to make the terms of that contract. They did that in this day. You say, Adam, that is graphic. It is gory. Absolutely it is. But you wouldn't forget it. And so kings in that day would even would sign contracts by the sacrificial cutting of their generals. And so God tells Abraham to do this, and he does this with his animals. And then in this vision that Abram has, he sees a torch, a bright light, and a smoking pot walking together. Through the carcasses of these animals to signify the contract, the covenant was made. Now, there's something that's very, very important here that we understand. God, in this vision that Abraham has, this vision, Abra- God is that flaming torch. God is that bright light, that source of light. Abraham is the smoking pot. And so God is the source of the means of this contract happening. So God makes this contract with Abraham, this covenant with Abraham, that his family would inherit this land, that his offspring would possess that land. But even deeper than that, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his offspring. As we saw a couple of weeks ago when we talked about genealogies, we came to understand that that offspring was Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came, he died on the cross and was resurrected to, brought, to provide brand new spiritual life, to provide us salvation. So God has come through with that covenant. But there's a new covenant people today. Did you know that? There's a new covenant, people, that God has made a covenant with. See, God made a covenant there with Abraham, and God deals primarily with Abraham and his family for the rest of the Old Testament. He's another word for covenant. So we have the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, where God is primarily dealing with the nation of Israel. And then Jesus Christ comes. He dies for the sins of the world, provides salvation for us. And there is a new testament given, a new covenant. To where the covenant people is no longer Abraham's family, God's people Israel. God's covenant people is now the church. And God has given us a covenant as the church. That we will be with Him one day. That we have an eternal home. We have salvation provided to us. We have the power of the Holy Spirit with us. We have access directly to Him through the Holy Spirit. That That God has promised and covenanted with the church that He will give us all we need so we can make Him known to the ends of the earth. We see that when God makes a covenant, a promise, He comes through. Pray with me. God, right now we just say thank you for your faithfulness to Abraham and his family and that you brought Jesus Christ to this world to provide salvation to us. God, I pray if there's anyone here that has not believed in Jesus, that today they would believe in Jesus, so that they can be credited with righteousness, with salvation, just like Abraham was. God, I pray that through your covenant, you made a new covenant with us as the church. God, thank you as if, if we are a believer, that we are your chosen people. And we thank you for the blessings and the privileges that come with that. Now, God, I pray that you would call us and move us as your people to make your name great to the ends of the earth. God, give us as your church the grace to follow you. Give us the courage to follow you. Give us the faith and the trust in you to follow you. Though you may call us and are calling us to step outside of our comfort zone and our preferences, I pray you would continue to move us as your people so we can look back and say, wow, look what God did. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you're in the Kansas City area, we'd love to have you be our guest. We're located at 8200 State Line Road in Leawood, Kansas. Worship services are on Sunday mornings at 1030. To learn more about us, visit our website at leawoodbaptist.com.